Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. As usual, my name is Michael and co-hosting with me is Phoenix. First of all, we need to apologize for the two-week break that we took. Uh, some of us were traveling across the world, so it was hard to get time to reschedule uh, podcasts. So we're, we're, we apologize, but we're back, back stronger. Now we have four, three guests today. Our first guest is Haruna. Haruna is a psychiatrist from the northeast of Nigeria, from the northeast of Nigeria. Our second guest is Ebua. Ebua is a health outcomes researcher. He's a PhD from, a, from, a, uh, from the University in the United States, but his, his specialism is in health outcomes. And our third guest is Ose. Ose is a member of the PDP, a hotelier, and also an aspiring uh, candidate for the House of Representatives. Now, the first topics we discussed with four topics we discussed today are firstly the tragedy at Doan College. Secondly, we'll discuss the killings that took place in Sokoto. Thirdly, we'll discuss the governor of Lagos State, Samuel Olu's peace walk, which has now been cancelled. And finally, we'll discuss the book by Bisi Akonde, who's one of the leaders of the APC. So we'll be discussing the revelations in his book. Now, firstly, to Phoenix, Doan College, it's generated a lot of commentary in both the political as well as the celebrity uh, circles in Nigeria. Um, the first question is, what on earth is happening to school? A, a student was killed. Nobody seems to know what hap has happened. And there seems to be a lot of uh, drama and intrigue. So can you give us a, a three-minute summary, Phoenix, of the issues? Hi, Michael, and uh, thanks, uh, Aruna, Ibu, and Jose uh, for joining us. Um, hello, listeners, and uh, yeah, uh, we apologize for for the break, and uh, glad to be back. Um, I, I think this 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 was just um, a story that has been upsetting, um, and it's not the only one. There's also this. Other child, Karen, I think her name is, um, that also died in similar circumstances. Um, I mean, their souls um, rest in peace and my condolences to their families. Um, I think it's, it is important um, that, that justice be served, that, that uh, this be investigated and uh, to, give the, to, to give the family, I don't know if you can ever have closure, but at least to give them help them make sense of what has happened, that a 12-year-old boy can lose his life in such circumstances. I, I, I think based on what we've learned, um, this young boy, Sylvester, um, attended Darwin College in Lagos, and uh, according to his words, he was, he was attacked by five senior students um, who beat him up and forced him to swallow something. Um, and then, of course, he was picked up, went home, and and then died as a result of his injuries and all of that. Um, of course, his parents have been trying to get the details out of the school, and of course, very quickly this became 
um, well known across the country. And what has made it worse is the school, um, first of all, putting out a statement that he had uh, he had uh, been injured as a result of a football game he was part of when he fell. Uh, and the family has, of course, disputed that. And in his own words, I think a video came out. I mean, that was not his, uh, his um, side of the story. And so now, I mean, following pressure and all of that, an investigation has begun and, and it's beginning to unravel what truly really happened. Um, and what has happened is uh, the five students that were named have been apprehended. Apparently, they, I, I hear they were picked up at the Lorne Airport, ostensibly trying to um, get away from, from, from what has happened. But uh, it, it's it for me, and I know we'll discuss it. It's a it's a sad, sad story, and it's reflects a reflection of the state of decay of 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 the Nigerian education system. Um, I mean, bullying is not new, and for for those of us who who went to boarding school, I mean, you will have tales of of uh, senior students, uh, you know. Um, being tough on junior students, but I never heard of an, an instance such as this that, that takes the life of, of someone so young and with their future ahead of them. Um, and, to, and to hear all of what is happening, I mean, cultism is something we've battled with in this country, but it was at institutions of higher learning. I mean, to see it now become endemic in, in, in secondary schools at such a young age, it, it, just, it just raises issues not only about the education system in Nigeria, because this was a this was a this was a, this was a private school where um, parents are paying significant sums for good quality education for their children. So you expect that um, the school is well run, that there are good um, teachers and and all of that 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 would instill the right values. But again, um, if people come to school with already their moral character um, impaired, I mean, you can expect that they will take that out on other people. So I won't take up too much time, but just to say, um, this is truly saddening. And uh, yeah, I look forward to a full investigation and, and to ensuring that justice is served. Thank you, Phoenix, for setting out the background. Now, Haruna, the young man in question, Sylvester Romani, he was killed, um, allegedly killed by bullies who were trying to initiate him into a cult. Now, the question for you, Haruna, because I know your, your background is psychiatry and mental health. What is going on? Why are children of that age being initiated into gangs and cults in even in elite schools what, what is the what is the logic or the motivation behind this cult phenomenon that seems to be spreading in nigeria all right um thank you for having me on your show yet again and um i think that's a very good question to you know ask and um first of all we'll say like uh, phoenix has said um condolences to the family of uh, sylvester romani and you know, it's quite sad to hear that such a young man lost his life in, uh, you know, 
in those circumstances, although, you know, we are not fully clear of what has led to his death. Um, obviously, people, um, the news out there is that he's been bullied by some other students and I think five of them have been arrested and they are waiting an autopsy, which is um, ongoing at the moment, as far as I'm aware from the last update by the school. But coming to the question of why are there, you know, bullies and the cultism and things like that, even in schools at this young age. I think Phoenix mentioned earlier that in the time past, we knew about it in the maybe university for those of us. I mean, I schooled in Nigeria and um, in my secondary, um, in terms of university or secondary school also. But, you know, back then it was in the higher institutions that you would get uh, cultism and things like that, gangs, groups, confraternities. But let's not forget also that the way the population is today, things have changed. So what we did, when we were only 17, 18, 19, people are doing, getting exposed to searching at much earlier and younger ages these days. So again, a typical example would be things like maybe even engaging in sexual activities. Whilst in the past, maybe look at the time of our parents, it would be when they were much older and then gradually the age limits, um, you know, the age for such things reduced, you know, till, I mean, obviously we're what we have today in the world. So, so that we have to look at things from that sort of evolutionary perspective in that, you know, the society has evolved and things have changed. So um, some of these influences start up earlier. Don't forget that a lot of, um, I mean, for those who schooled in universities in Nigeria, for example, because I know you've got audience from all over the world. So just to give a bit of context, you know, um, they sort of have these various cults in the universities, but what they've been doing gradually through the years is pushing this down to even, you know, other institutions or colleges, you know, and then even um, secondary schools so that they can get as many members as they can quite early on so that when those ones graduate into the university, they already have like an influx of people, you know, they already have a base and they just sort of transition. Okay, yep, you went the cult right from secondary school and then you just transition into it in university. So it's the influence of from maybe older people, maybe older siblings and other people they've come in contact with. So, and it's going to, I mean, it can only get worse. Obviously, it's it's surprising that in a school as, you know, like though and like uh, Felix alluded to, um, Felix alluded to that is a private school that's, you would expect these things may not be possible. Unfortunately, um, that's what's happening. The influence of the older ones on the younger ones, and it's you know spreading down. And I think even as young as primary schools these days, you hear people forming calls and things. And again, it's been passed from you know older ones to younger ones to say, oh, you need to have a group of friends. You need to have this gang. Maybe call yourselves this. And that's how one of the reasons why it's coming. And I'm sure there may be so many other reasons, but I think this is a major one for me. Thank you. Thank you, Haruna. I need to bring in Ose because Haruna has raised an issue that I want Ose, the politician here, to clarify. Um, Ose, Haruna has talked about the fact that these cult groups oftentimes tend to be a recruiting ground for politicians and other criminals to, I'm not saying all politicians are criminals, but just be a recruiting ground for politicians to attract the thugs and the people who do the dirty work during their uh, election campaigns. Now, can you talk us through this, Ose? Is, is this something that happens within the PDP or do you know of any stories where there are members of your party or candidates of your party who were members of cult groups and use that influence to 
uh, rise to power, Jose. <laughs> I've never had a more leading question in my life. <laughs> um, no, um, it's a serious topic, but no, um, I don't know of any um, PDP politician that has used uh, a court to, uh, to rise to power. Um, I am aware that um, confraternities are involved um, do play sort of like an outside role in our politics in general. Um, um, just as I'm aware that you have your agberos and thugs and uh, useful youths who are um, who somehow are always available to be enforcers for politicians in general in Nigeria uh, come election season. Um, but I don't, I don't think you know. Sort of like you know, if if I want to pull away from this. Uh, focus you want to have on the PDP. Um, I sort of want to look at how you know this incident that has happened is is sort of a reflection of um, societal failure, and not just in universities, not just in our secondary schools. Now, um, you know, Phoenix talked about the re the reaction of the school, where they initially denied it; uh, it never happened. Um, and then they said, you know, you know what, when evidence was presented, you know, they're open to a full investigation. Uh, meanwhile, the parents of these kids are trying to get the, the children out of school. And it reminded me very, it reminded me of the NSAS thing and the reactions of the military and the government to what we saw, where something bad happens and the instinctive reaction is to deny that it happened. And then when that fails, you try to protect um, protect the ones that you know are important members of society you, you try and protect the criminals you know and, and what's worrying for me you know keeping with the analogy or the parallels between the NSAS incident and this is that we've seen it happen everywhere we saw it in um Kaduna where the military killed the Shiites they denied it they denied they were dead then evidence was presented then they they promised an investigation you know and what has happened what happened in Zaria what, hap what happened in Lekki is what I think will happen here, where you know no one will get punished, um, crimes will get swept under the the carpet, um, and life will continue. We will forget until the next incident happens. You know, and, and the parallel again with with the NSAS Lekki target massacre was that this is not the first time students have been killed in universities and secondary schools by these violent called groups but you know it's a high profile school it's a very um high profile um case and so we are all focusing on this one incident like it's the first time you know like all the other cases of systemic failures across society and across our schools don't happen we've all seen the videos of um students called fighting in secondary schools this is not the first time I've seen videos of students jumping off balconies trying to get away from violence and the police going in with tear gas. Um, but again, I, I don't know, there sort of is a, um, you know, and maybe Haruna can speak to this. We, we sort of are more, you know, captured by these higher profile cases. You know, we try to ignore, um, you know, when it, when it doesn't matter, when the school is poor, the students are nameless. Um, it, it doesn't outrage us, but if it's, 
an important school, an important student, uh, and if celebrities are involved, you know, then that's when our outrage really shines through. Um, I'm, I'm trying to keep to our three minutes um, uh, time speaking, time, time limit, but, you know, confraternities in and of themselves are not bad. They're supposed to sort of be like, you know, social groups between schools where you sort of like learn leadership skills, you learn how to socialize. Um, but like all things Nigeria, we sort of have corrupted, you know, the noble ideas of your sororities or confraternities. And we've uh, made them poisonous cancers that, um, you know, are destroying our society. Thank you, Oset. I, I need to get some further clarification because uh, you've stylishly tried to evade my my key question. I know you're you're saying it's not a PDP problem, but the question is: there's a general acknowledgement, or there's gen a lot of the commentary says that being a member of a cult seems to help you in a career in politics. And the question I'm asking is. How does this work? Because I've heard stories of even in Edo State, one of the prominent PDP elected officials there, a few people have said off the record that he was a prominent member of one of the cult groups when he was at Uniben. And it was that uh, membership that helped to propel him into higher office. And also that cult membership helps to mobilize votes for him. So that's the question I'm asking you is that I know you're saying you, you personally didn't know anyone or it's not a PDP problem, but can you talk us through the, the influence that cult groups have in Nigerian politics? So I think you are speaking of, you know, when you talk about Uniben, and I think you are speaking of uh, confraternities. Um, and I think one of the more um, prominent confraternity members, I think he actually even founded one was Wole Shoinka. Um, so in and off, of themselves, you know, the idea of a confraternity is not a bad thing. It's a social group that's supposed to better the members. And just like alumni um, associations, they offer their students mentorship and leg ups in, in society. So they're not, you know, when you say they, they, they hold an influence, I would accept that um, that's true. I would counter that it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I don't know of this, um, highly elected PDP member you speak of. Um, so I cannot respond directly to that case. But I do know that these confraternities have been um, corrupted. Um, all of them, most of the prominent ones are, are now violent um, organizations that intimidate um, students and even you know, have extended their violent influence to foreign countries. I don't know if you remember, was it in Malaysia or Thailand where we had um, clashes between these these rival um, court groups that they have now become yes, um, and it's in, and and again just because of the nature of our politics and that's why I'm reluctant to allow you make it a PDP thing just because of the nature of our politics across the nation. Certain politicians will look for people who can threaten and intimidate and enforce their will um, at the polling centers. Um, and court members now have lent themselves, you know, to being recruited by these sorts of politicians. Um, again, I cannot speak from personal experience. It's secondhand and thirdhand information. I personally haven't recruited any. Um, I don't plan to recruit any uh, for my campaigns. 
Um, but yes, I do realize it's a problem. Um, and maybe part of the reason why it hasn't been tackled is, again, Nigeria re rewards the violence. So violent politicians will win elections with these confraternities and these court groups, and they will become SSAs, medias, or chief security officers, and will become untouchable. Um, so, you know, it's speculative, but I would not be surprised at all to learn that a member of a court group is a highly elected, is a highly placed member of government today in Edo State. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Thank you, Osa. I'm going to go to Abua next. Sorry, Abua, the question I have for you is, I think Phoenix made this point, which is, and Osa also made that point, which is about the alleged attempted cover-up by the school. And a number of people on social media have expressed their general anger at the fact that in Nigeria, there always seems to be this cover-up culture where no matter what the crime is, instead of investigating or trying to help the victim, the first instinct of the institution is to try to cover up the issues. So the question for you, Ebua, is, why would a school be aware that one of their students has been bullied to the point of death and their first instinct is to actually issue a, a statement that clearly does not uh, match the, the evidence? Why, why do they do that, Ebua? Right, that's a, that's a very good question. And uh, thinking about it, I think there is a general culture in Nigeria, there's a fear of punishment. That's number one. And, and number two is there is um, a lack of education. There isn't a lack of schooling in Nigeria, but there's a lack of education in the country. So let's talk about number one. Nigerians have a very high fear of uncertainty. And so um, when there is anything that disrupts what we think is normal, that fear kicks in and we say, oh, we have to make sure that things continue to run as they've run. And so you cannot accept that there has been a problem in your school. You cannot accept that there has been a shooting. The first thing we do is deny, 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 deny. And then only when it seems like accepting something would restore normalcy do we accede to it and just a very quick anecdote to 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 emphasize this point when i was learning to drive the the fellow who taught me to drive was a senior cousin he said if you ever get into a crash come out and start shouting don't care what happens just come out and start shouting it's the fear that if you are wrong, something bad would happen to you. That's a, a national culture. I, and that's what makes not only institutions, but even people behave like this. And, and then the second point is that we're not a very educated population. We're a horribly educated population. If we know things like um, concepts that are taught in other places on how to separate issues from people, then we are going to be better at resolving issues. So if the principal, if the principal hears, oh, there's been a death at your school, if the principal cannot separate people from situations, the interpretation is going to be, I am to blame for the death at school. So of course, the natural uh, instinct would be to 
to, to deny it and keep denying and keep denying. But if we know as part of our national psyche, we can separate people from issues. There has been a death, no blame. It is a neutral statement. There has been a death in, uh, in, in the school. And the response would be, how, when, why? Let us find out. And then there's a third reason why we do that. Um, unfortunately, what should be a beautiful part of our culture has become a horrible part. So like Ose said, uh, confraternities are a thing, but we've corrupted them. In groups are a thing in Nigerian culture. And I really like that about us. We have different in groups and we have a patronage system that we can actually harness to move the country forward because if in groups compete, then there's innovation and people grow. But we don't see that in the corrupted version of the patronage system in this country. So when something happens to a child, the, pre, the first, the second, apart from trying to avoid blame, the second thing a leader or the principal would do is find out who are the people involved and where do they belong to. And so ties to what Phoenix said, if, or I think it was possible, if this child is the son of so-and-so, if this child is a PDP member or an APC member, then the narrative is rearranged to protect them. And, it's, and everybody does this. So it's when is your turn, you do it. So all is fair, as they say, in, in love and, and, and war. And um, to, to summarize, you see all of these, all of these crazy behaviors, this lack of education, this in corrupted in-group, and this miseducation, even in the way we interact with one another, even on Twitter, which is the space we, we are all familiar with. So if I said something, right, to, uh, some, to something a PDP or an APC member has posted, instead of understanding the issue, it's turned and said, you are an agent for the opposition party. And then the entire discussion shifts to PDP versus APC. It does not matter whether you say, oh, it rained in Aguda, or there's a flooding in Surulere. It becomes a political issue. And this is what's happening. And it's destroying our ability to evolve uh, to a higher level of intelligence as Nigerians. Thank you. Thank you, Eboa, for your uh, insightful contributions. My final question on this topic is to Phoenix. So Phoenix, one of the one of the, the 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 outcomes of this tragic incident was the general debate on social media as to whether or not boarding schools are still relevant in the 21st century. So in your view, do you think boarding schools are still useful in Nigeria or do you think it's time for them to be scrapped? Because a lot number of people are saying on Twitter were saying, look, it makes no sense for anyone to send their the kids to boarding school. What, what do you think, Phoenix? I think it speaks to what Jose was talking about. I mean, you take you take a an institution, or or you take a um, a feature of society that has existed and done some good, and then it gets corrupted, and then and then it gets a bad name. Um, I, I think boarding schools. I went to a boarding school. In fact, I went to two boarding schools, um, and and I and my, all of my siblings as well, and I and I think it did a lot in molding our characters in sense that gave us independence, helped us learn how to do things ourselves, learn how to live away from home, and things like that. 
I think in, in, from my experience, it's been a good thing. Um, but from what we've seen, if not properly managed, and that again speaks to um, the dereliction of duty by the, the adults who are supposed to, uh, to, to model good behavior and who are supposed to look after um, the students. I mean, so the, the housemaster or, or whatever, who I think should be held liable and, and should also be facing some music and the school in general. So for me, the institution of having boarding schools and what it, what 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 to me they've always stood for and what they've enabled is good. But as with everything, if you don't manage it in the right manner, if you don't put the right controls and have a proper governance system, when you put children um, ages eleven, and then of course at the top end of the spectrum, you're talking about 16, 17 year olds who are preparing to go to university. Surely you need to have a proper governance system in place to protect uh, children and to make sure that there's a healthy environment for the learning, for the development, that for the growth that is supposed to happen and typically happens. But now we've, we're seeing um, uh, something bad that has happened. I think we need to step back and reflect on the, the gaps that led to this happening rather than totally throwing away the boarding school system, in my view. Thank you, Phoenix. I think you're, I think you're probably right, although I, I am probably biased because I, <laughs> I hated it. So in my view, they should scrap, scrap those places that were their, their, their agents, in my view, of, of the devil. But I think you're, you're right to an extent boarding schools can be useful in, in the right circumstances. But our next topic in Sokoto, state in Northwest Nigeria, what we call bandits ambushed a passenger bus and burned- We no longer call them bandits anymore. I, I certainly not on this podcast, Michael, I beg. Okay. <laughs> We've been calling them terrorists for a while. <laughs> and now the chickens are coming home to roost. <laughs> yeah, so bandits, terrorists, gunmen, nobody knows what to describe them as, but if they killed 30 people, they burned them to death, and then a further 24 were injured. So to you, Phoenix, first of all, what what is going on in, in, in northern Nigeria in terms of insecurity? Because things seem to have gotten out of hand. Every day there's attacks and nobody knows. One group are called bandits, another group are called terrorists, another group are called uh, herder clashes with farmers. So really, what, what is the underlying issue? Why is this happening on a daily basis or appearing to happen on a daily basis now? You know, Michael, um, I'm trying to remember when it was exactly. I think it was about three years ago or so. I wrote an article on uh, on Medium in the days when I used to write, um, which I, I titled it the Insecurity Edition and the Strong Man Failed. Um, it was in the wake of uh, um, the deaths of this, I don't know if you all remember, this Red Cross, um, there were some, some Red Cross um, 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 staffers who were kidnapped and then there was this uh, young lady Awa Kosha if I remember her name correctly who was who was murdered by by um, by this terrorist I think it was Boko Haram 
and and for me it was just it had it, it brought to a head all of the insecurity issues that we had been seeing from 20 i would say from 2016 late 2015 onwards when things just escalated and escalated on multiple fronts so we still had Boko Haram who we had been told were technically defeated they were still kidnapping and killing people and then of course we also had the Fulani headsman crisis then we started to see the issues in Zamfara um, with this so-called bandits morphing into uh, clear terrorism I mean the Abuja Kaduna uh, highway became on on unpassable I mean unsafe for people and things just continued to snowball. And we had this chap who we're told was, um, I mean, was a strong man, ex-military leader. He had done this magic in chasing my Tassini all the way into Chad. He would be the one to come and sort out all the insecurity problems. But rather than doing anything about it, all he did was just, uh, you know, um, keep quiet, be complacent, um, show absolute incompetence and inability to grasp the issues and to find lasting solutions. And you see, as with, as with every bad actor, in my view, all, you, all they need is encouragement. Encouragement in the sense that they, they perpetrate an act and there is no swift and decisive backlash. And then, of course, they get emboldened, they keep doing that. We've talked about this over the two years we've been doing this. They get emboldened, and before you know it, it metastasizes into something worse. They kept telling us these guys were bandits, they're doing it for pecuniary reasons, and now all of a sudden we're finding them burning people to death in a bus. And for me, it's that's it. That's the core of it. It's the fact that, especially in the North, you have a, a leader who is from the North, who, who has not done anything concrete to, to, to deal with the security insecurity issues that we have, especially in the North. We've seen this chap go, and I'm talking about Muhammad Buhari just so that nobody, I mean, people don't get confused. We've seen him in his own home state at a time that he was there on holiday. We had children kidnapped from their school. He did nothing about it. We've seen his officials go and pay ransom to, to this so-called bandits or terrorists or whoever they are to, to buy back a, uh, a, a, an anti-aircraft gun so that he can be protected. So as, and, they, and you see, their supporters keep, keep reminding us that, oh, we no longer see bomb blasts in, in Abuja, which goes back to one of the points I've made repeatedly that if it doesn't touch him, if it doesn't come home to him, either in Arsenal Rock or to some members of his family, he doesn't care. And, and, and what, what really sh shocks me the most is, is that his power base has always been in the North. And, he, and, and, and I don't know, maybe Haruna would, would kindly speak to that. How he continues to retain popularity in the wake of these kind of issues, the deaths, the, the, the destruction, the, the desecration, the continued um, um, inability to secure lives and property just, just, just amazes me. But it is clear that this whole Buhari experiment has been an unmitigated disaster. It's been a failure. And I hope that we, we learn from it and truly interrogate choices um, next time around. And more importantly, that we hold the Nigerian state to account for securing lives and property of everyone, not just the few 
privileged people, but of everyone. I, I just can't understand how people can move around freely. How, how do people go about their lives in, in, in Northern Nigeria today? I mean, and try to make some, have some semblance of normalcy um, in the midst of this kind of thing that you can just be in a commuter bus and then just roasted alive. It, it just blows my mind. But I mean, it starts with leadership. It starts with a, a, a lack of uh, accountability and driving strong outcomes. It is not for nothing that the United States, of course, we hear it all the time when we watch movies, we hear it when they do stuff. They'll be telling you, oh, they never pay, they never, uh, how do they put it? They never uh, negotiate with terrorists. It's a mantra for that. But there's a reason to, to that is, is sending a strong message that, look, you can do whatever you want, but we will come back swiftly. In the wake of 9-11, we saw the promise that uh, uh, George Bush made, and we saw what they did going, going about. Of course, you, you, I mean, some of it wasn't right. Some of it was overreach. But you need that kind of, you need bad actors to know that you will go to any lens to wipe them out such that you deter them from continuing to do the things they, they, they do. But we've not seen that happen. We've not seen that happen. Instead, we see uh, our leaders um, hobnobbing with collaborators, with uh, the likes of Shea Gumi, who, who um, goes to do unofficial parlays with them. And, and you know, it's, at the end of the day, it's, it's leadership. It's poor leadership, it's incompetent leadership that has let this ca carry on for too long. And then you embolden these people to continue to, and I, and I wonder where it's going to stop because you just, you just, I don't, what will it take? I mean, to finally get, if he is not concerned, what about all the other people in this country who call themselves leaders? What will it take for them to know that this, this can't go on for much longer. Thank you. Thank you, Phoenix, for setting out the issues. I'm firstly going to go to Osea. Um, Osea, Phoenix has talked about leadership. Now, the question I'm asking, the reason why I'm asking you this question is because the governor of Sokoto State, uh, Aminu Tambuwal, is a PDP governor. Now, when there's insecurity in Kaduna State, the Kaduna State governor is blamed just as much as President Buhari is blamed. So why is it that in Sokoto, the focus seems to be on the president and not the PDP governor, Tambua, who some would say bears equal responsibility as the leader of the state? So how, how do you respond to that, Jose? Well, I think anyone who says, who tries to blame a state governor or to, to say that any state governor is responsible directly for not the protection of lives and property, but for commanding the armed forces is ignorant. Um, and which is why, whether it's Zamfara, whether it's Kaduna, whether it's Edo states, Buhari is responsible for the failure of the security forces to protect lives and property. Now, where you then see sort of like a pivot to the actions of governors, and I would use maybe a Shane McIndee for instance, um, and compare him with Sam Wolu in Lagos during the NSAD protests, where, where, the mili where the security forces under the control of Buhari had failed, what Shea Mackinley did in Oyo State was to pull the police off the streets 
when he saw that the police were escalating um, the crisis, uh, pulled the police off the streets and marched with protesters to give cover, almost legal protection to the agitation. Now compared to what happened in Lagos where um, an ill thought out um, curfew was, um, was um, announced and the military was actually called out by state governor. You know, so if, if you look at Lagos, for instance, you see people blaming Samwulu almost the same way that they are uh, blaming Buhari for, for what happened at Lekki. And if you go to Kaduna, it's, it's not El Rufai's job to command and control the armed forces, but people blame him for his divisive and inciting rhetoric. I remember, for instance, watching on NTA when the governor of the state came out to say that um, people, uh, and I think he was, he was referring to Southern Kaduna Christians, um, I think, I don't want to be sued, had killed Fulanese on the eve of an election. Um, it, it quickly turned out to be false. But just imagine, and that election was postponed, just imagine if that election was not postponed. And just imagine the amount of violence that could have ensued because the state governor came on national television to claim that um, one section of his state was killing another section of his state. You know, so you, 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 you hold him not responsible for the security, failure of the security forces, but for not protecting his people and for actually almost inciting violence with his rhetoric, with his divisiveness, with his, with his posturing. I think that's why there sort of is a, um, you know, people who are Democrats, people who are concerned um, about building, you know, diverse but, you know, harmonious societies, you know, are alarmed when we hear talk about an Erofi presidency, for instance, because you've seen what he can do with just words in a state as diverse as Kaduna. So it's, it's not as simplistic as, you know, Buhari is responsible for security. So in Kaduna, why are we blaming Erufai? You know, Buhari, yes, he is responsible, but is Erufai actually helping to control the situation or is he ex ex exacerbating it? And that's the question. Um, I'll just pivot quickly to, to me what, what, you know, the, the original topic about uh, what's happening in Sokoto. Um, I don't want to make it political. You know, I know that Tambua is looking to become um, the president of Nigeria, um, God be with him. Um, and I don't want to say this uptick in violence in Kaduna might be as a result of that. Um, what I think is a result is, again, a failure of security. You are seeing um, uh, increased bombings from the, um, I think from the Air Force in Zamfara and Katsina. And so invariably, um, bandits and I don't want to call them bandits anymore, terrorists have been pushed to neighboring uh, states like Kaduna and like Sokoto. And what a lot of people don't realize also is that, you know, the deaths, the killings in Sokoto have been, you know, again, they haven't been widely reported, but bandits have been killing people in Sokoto for a while, uh, all through this year. Um, in fact, immediately after um, the governor paid a condolence visit to these people who were burnt, bandits came and killed um, some more some more citizens there. Um, and, you know, I think it was Phoenix that, that you know, pointed out the, the curiosity in criminals, in terrorists coming to burn uh, people alive and not steal goods and not, you know, take them for um, hostage so that they can get ransom from them. Um, 
But again, there's, pre- there's, there's precedent in the action of these people. When you kill them, they come back and, you know, reprisal attacks. Um, again, they did it in Niger State uh, recently, and they also did it in Sokoto, where I think recently um, Sokoto people uh, in a community, they captured some band, some terrorists, uh, handed them, some people handed them over to the police, and then these residents went to the police station, brought these people out and killed them. You know, so I, I think that's, that's why this, this happened. I think it, there's an element of reprisal um, in it. That's the only way it makes sense. Um, but again, it's, I can only make this statement because it has happened in the past where bandits have been killed. They come back and try to punish the, the communities involved. Thank you, Ose, for your contribution. It's interesting that uh, you said you, you're worried about being sued by a refi. <laughs> but uh, I'll bring in Haruna at this point. Haruna, the killings in Sokoto generated a lot of debate from the commentariat. And a lot of them were saying it seems unfair that when there's a killing in southern Nigeria, the media makes noise about it. The intellectuals and the activists make noise about it. But apparently, when there's killings like the one in Sokoto, the media and the commentariat are silent. So the implication is that the South does not care about what is happening in to uh, northern Nigerians. Do, do you agree with that sentiment, Aruna? All right. Uh, thank you. Um, just before I answer your question, I'll just sort of slightly disagree with Osei on the issue that, uh, you know, state governors should not also be sort of held responsible because, I mean, for one, state governors are chief security officers of their states, you know, and to an extent, I mean, I've, without giving much information, I've also worked a bit in the Nigerian sort of system before I left the country, you know, so I know what powers governors have in terms of security. So I think every governor should also have a bit of responsibility and accountability when it comes to security. They can't control the armed forces, but then there are people in there, you know, within the security settings in the state that they have control over. So, um, you know, so I think we need to <laughs> whilst you are a PDP member and, um, you know, we, we also need to ask uh, Tambua what his role is and how he can, you know, hold him accountable as well. Otherwise, it would be, again, us not taking, resp- um, not holding the responsible people accountable for things that have happened. I'm not absolving Buhari in any way. He's also the chief culprit here. So that's um, one thing. So um, coming to the issue of do I agree with the sentiment? So let's look at the um, NSAS protest, for example, that happened in Lagos. You saw that quite a good proportion of the northern of the northerners, I would say, did not even support the NSAS because for them it was more, you know, like Eboa said um, earlier, people always sort of take sides and immediately think of, well, what's in it for me or who are my people? And, you know, like with the answer straight away, it was a case of, well, these guys are protesting against Buhari rather than, well, people were killed here, you know, or something happened. SARS has been, you know, as we all know what uh, the SARS team had been doing to people in terms of harassing people and even um, extrajudicial killing. But 
straight away the reaction of the northerners was no this is a protest against our president you know our northern president in quotes you know and now it's come to the issue of okay in zamfara and and i mean sokoto i mean we've been seeing what's been happening in zamfara and again the southerners have also sort of said well you can't cry more than the bereaved or when our house was born in you guys turned a blind eye so why should it be on us now to look you know to cry with you or to help you protest you know so that's one thing and secondly don't forget that let's also look at it from the political point of things that the election is coming up and we all know i mean the apc wants to hand over to a sovereign maybe tinubu is one of the front runners and you know the southern media control a lot of the narratives in terms of nigeria in terms of outreach and if you have a Tinubu who is a strong man in the South who controls a lot of the media, then you wouldn't expect people from his, um, you know, that to, to then join in castigating Buhari, especially at this time with the insecurity in the North. So, so there is something for them as well, you know, as to why they may just well turn a blind eye. Well, um, there's no point criticizing this one. Otherwise, everything, let me use a Nigerian phrase, everything will scatter and maybe he would then say, oh, you're also criticizing me, so I'm not going to make, give you the, you know, the, I wouldn't hand over to you. you, you. So, so that again will lead people in the south to some of the people in the south especially in the media that maybe apc strongholds not to want to join in this but i think if you look at the average nigerian is empathetic irrespective of which region or which religion they belong to about what's happening in the north but i think these two things have sort of led to people saying well you didn't cry when it was our turn we won't cry for you and secondly well if we start shouting now then it may scatter everything and it wouldn't be our you wouldn't hand over to us so why don't we just let it be so i think these are a few things from um that i think maybe also adding to it and uh, again it's it's just a shame and it's just really sad to hear what's happening in sokoto you know and or what has happened in sokoto and Zamfaran. you know i think even katina the present home state is not spared from this um um the activities of these people i mean you guys have called them terrorists rightly so because they are terrorizing people sadly yeah so thank you thank you haruna for your response i'll go finally to ebua ebua just before this podcast started, we were talking about how ideally you probably prefer to live in Nigeria as opposed to the United States. But when you see the number of people being killed every day in northern Nigeria from the act of uh, terrorism, bandits or murderers, do you blame anybody for wanting to leave the country and settle abroad? Or do you think they have a patriotic duty to go back home? Uh, that's a that's a really good question, especially because it's one of the things I study as an outcomes researcher. You know, uh, you, you rightly use the word. Ideally, I would like to be home. Ideally, most of us would like to be home. Um, but we have voted with our feet, you know, and that is what a decision is. It is what you would do in a real world scenario. The killings. I, while um, Ose and Haruna and Phoenix were talking, I imagined myself being in a bus in Northern Nigeria. And just like that, you know, as we say, someone stops the bus and they say, we're not going to kidnap you, just sit in the bus. And then they pour gasoline or petrol and set that bus ablaze. Any of those people could have been me. 
Even in the worst situations internationally, with all the racism and targeted violence, it's almost unthinkable that that would happen. And so asking people to be patriotic, um, it's, I don't know, it's, uh, it's asking one, a person to be a messiah, really. And, and it's, it's, it's very sad because now we're being asked to make a choice between two very suboptimal um, choices. And, and, and I say very suboptimal, and maybe this is showing my bias, but because some people would leave Nigeria and for them it to be heaven forever. But it's not the case after a while. And it's not the case for everyone. Um, I believe that those of us on this podcast right now are in the same age group and we have aged parents. And if you're unable to return home very frequently, every six months, every year, if your father or mother is above 70, you have only five or six or 10 times, 10 more times where you would actually be able to spend time with your parents if you travel home once every year or once every two years. And that's what makes it a horrible and suboptimal choice. And all you can do is maybe send money or send this or talk on the phone. But all the things that you can get in terms of family cohesion are being lost because the government has failed to protect people. And so people have to run away and people have to seek uh, opportunities elsewhere. Uh, so it's 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 a uh, I cannot blame anyone for moving. It is the practical decision. Uh, asking people to be patriotic is no is not is not no. We should first. I like to say let's start from the beginning. The beginning is that the state governors and the federal government should protect the lives of people. When they do that and give us the infrastructure, then we will turn around and be able to be. Um, what's the word, patriotic and innovative and all those fancy buzzwords they like to throw around uh, these days. Thank you. Thank you, Boa. Down to our next topic, which is the NSARS, uh, ongoing NSARS uh, drama. The on the day that the governor of Lagos State was supposed to publish his white paper on the judicial panels, he instead invited a group of prominent uh, public figures to join him on a peace walk. It wasn't quite clear what the peace walk was supposed to be achieving, but he invited the likes of Mr. Macaroni, uh, Sheung Kuti, and Falls, the I think he's a Falls, a rapper, singer. I'm not quite sure what, what they call them. But he invited them, and they all rejected his, his invitation. And then the walk has now subsequently been cancelled. So to Phoenix, quickly in uh, two minutes, what what was the purpose of the walk? Um, because it's it's unclear how how the walk was supposed to be the solution to the lucky maskers. Okay, what what was the purpose, Phoenix? Michael, I think we have to invite uh, Mr. Sonwoyu to come and tell us the, the purpose of the war. Because, you see, it's one of those things where politicians have their psychophones uh, around them and uh, they, they tell them these nice-sounding ideas. 
And because they don't have a strong frame of reference to sift through some of the BS that they get, they just come out and, and say, oh, this is a great idea. Let's do a peace walk. What particularly made that position the tenuous one was the fact that his government had labeled the report that the panel had provided that everyone was saying that the panel had been brave, they've come out with the out, the out, the truth, and they were proposing significant re recommendations to make to make good. The government came out and said that the whole the whole thing was uh, was uh, uh, falsification of the of, of that it was untrue. They practically denied the report, and in their white paper that was going to come out, that was the point. So doing that was a slap on the face of Lagosians and Nigerians in general, because <coughs> you were basically denying the fact that so many people had died, that the Nigerian army and the Nigerian police had committed murder at Leki Togate. And all the things that had been reported, and then you turn around and tell people you want them to come walk with you to, to, for, for peace. There's no peace without justice. For peace to reign, there needs to be justice. So if you do justice, you won't even be the one begging people to come and walk with you for peace. So the moment that happened, there was, there was no way, I mean, in my view, and I'm happy that some of those people that you named outrightly refused to walk with him. Um, I mean, that, that was never going to be the case. And so it just showed someone who was who is out of touch with the people that he's uh, supposed to serve. And that's one thing that Nigerian politicians perhaps don't understand. And hopefully my friend will say it would not be of that ilk. They're there to serve people. And, and when the people are clamoring for, for justice, saying that their lives were being threatened, that people had, were losing their lives in the hands of security officials, and they came out to protest, and you, the same governor, um, invited the army to mow them down. You then institute a panel that comes out and says that, yes, this is exactly what happened. And then you decide to deny that report. You, you become the enemy in the eyes of, of the people. So, I mean, his, his peace work was doomed to fail from the beginning and I'm glad that he did. Thank you, Phoenix. Let me bring you to Osea at this point. Osea. An interesting result of that was a few days after there was this event in a Pentecostal church. I think it was called, is it House on Sand or House on the Rock? I think, yes, the, the church with uh, Pastor Paul Adeforasin as the pastor. So a representative of the Lagos government showed up to the event and the youth in the crowd booed him because of the anger at the NSARS or the Lekki massacre and his handling of the investigation, investigative report, he was booed. And then the pastor got up and apologized to the, to the guest, the representative of the Lagos state governor and said Christians had a duty to respect authority. Now, do you, do you agree with that? Do you think it was wrong for the Nigerian youth of Lagos to, to boo the governor or say? So I saw the video 
um, the morning it happened. And I think you are being um, truly charitable to the pastor. Um, let me try and quote him if I remember correctly. He said, you must never disrespect authority. Um, and the reason why you must never disrespect them is because they bear the sword and you don't want them to bear the sword against you in judgment. And to put it into context, the people were booing because the Nigerian government and the Lagos State government had used the sword, the military, to kill peaceful protesters. And um, you invite these murderers to your, whatever church service or event it was, people who were not killed are protesting peacefully. They were not throwing tomatoes or bananas or eggs. They were just expressing their displeasure that you were polluting the stage with these killers or a representative of these killers who had days before denied that there was any, um, their white paper that they released denied that there was a massacre. I think they only considered that just one person died. And then not only do you not climb the stage to tell the representative of the governor that this is the people speaking and the voice of the people is the voice of God, that he should take this message back to his boss, you threaten them. You threaten them with speaking out and you threaten them that they should be silent or they will be killed. You threaten them that if they speak, authority will use the sword in judgment against them, just like they did on the 20th of October. You know, it's, it was beyond disgraceful. And I, and I saw, I think what was disappointing was, you know, we, we all understand when government fails and we, we say, we, we try to hold them to, you know, a very low bar, you know, you shouldn't kill people that are peacefully protesting. Um, you shouldn't say certain stuff. You should try to respect life. You should try to respect freedom of speech. Um, but we seem, when it's our pastor, I, I, I forget who it was who was talking about in groups, uh, when we're talking about um, what happened in doing um, in, in that college um, and how we seem to protect our own. So it didn't matter what the, the pastor had said. Once you're a member of that congregation or maybe of the wider church, you know, you felt you had to come in to, to defend bullshit. Um, and I just couldn't get my head around it. That why could you not come out to tell the pastor that what you said was wrong? Uh, your duty was to protect you and defend and stand by your, your congregation, not pander to the government. Why did you even invite them in the first place? You hear people saying, you know what, he had a duty as a host um, to protect his guests. You have a duty as a pastor to protect the lives of your congregation. You have a duty to speak truth to power. You fail them in both accounts and then end up pandering um, to government. Um, it's, it's funny. I, I don't understand why he did that. Um, I think, again, it's reflective of maybe the outside power government holds over citizens. Maybe the pastor was afraid they would revoke his CEO. His CEO. Um, like happened in Kano, I think, where they got a judgment against the Kano state government and, um, you know, the, the lawyer who took that case, I forget what case it was against Gandhi was served with a um, tenement rate bill running into billions of naira or something like that. Um, but the pastor should be above physical um, threats or, or the fear of losing his property or, 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 you know, money or access to power. I, I don't know. I was really disappointed in the pastor. I think we should hold men of God to a higher standard than politicians. Um, and I think 
um, everyone from the pastor to the representative to people who defended that pastor uh, let, let themselves down. Thank you, Bose. Just to clarify, the, the church is called House on the Rock, and the pastor is Pastor Paul Adiforasin. Now to Ebua, the I don't know where you were during the NSARS protests or if you watched the live stream video of the people being killed, but can you explain to me why even now the government and the government of Lagos State in particular is keen to deny that the incident took place? <laughs> um, I mean, think, let's, let's think about it. So if they deny that, if they accept that it took place, then the question moves to who gave the order, right? And that's the question people are asking. Because, um, <clears throat> and, for, and once you get to who gave the order, um, it becomes more difficult to, to squash the whole issue. So, so the, the first thing you do is you deny that this has ever, that ever took place. And it does not matter what evidence we have. And this is a problem. Uh, this is a problem with very poorly organized societies. And uh, even globally, we began to see this with the last uh, presidency in the United States where people can come out and say, it does not matter what the evidence says. I can produce alternative facts. I can say what I want. And as long as I maintain that, and as long as I have people who support me, we will maintain that and that will be the fact. And that's what has always happened in Nigeria. Even, even from... Um, even from interpersonal relations, uh, um, from secondary school, uh, from your family drama, you know, we're, we're African, we're Nigerian, we tend to have large families, from family drama. It is not what is right, it is who is right. And who is right is determined usually by who has status, who has power. And so, um, Despite the fact that there's evidence that there were killings, despite the fact that there is that that there's a report, you know, it's not an issue of what does the evidence say. It is who has the power to win this discussion. And because if you have the power to win this discussion or the power to steer this discussion, the issue can become was there even a killing or not? And, to, and for the people to empower to win, they have to maintain that there was there were no killings. Because if they if they do, then they've admitted that there's killings. Now it just makes sense in a civilian democracy that there should be some investigations, and maybe somebody will have to take the fall, you know, for that. And ev and no one wants to be that person that takes the fall for for giving the order. So the the play, the strategy right now is to deny that it even happened in the first place, irrespective of evidence and irrespective of who, who knows or who saw what. Thank you, Abua, for touching out the issues. The final question on this topic goes to Haruna. Haruna, the, going back to the original issue, the, the governor said he has canceled the peace walk 
because of this new Omicron strain of coronavirus. He says that's the reason why he's cancelled it because he was trying to avoid any gatherings that would exacerbate the spread. Opposition voices say, no, he's cancelled it because a number of people who invited, the prominent people who invited, turned down his invitation. So the question to you, Haruna, is whose report do we believe, the governor or the opposition voices? Okay, well, thank you. That's an interesting question, and uh, it's good you've used a biblical phrase, whose report shall we believe? Paul, let's not forget, you know, everywhere in the world, uh, governments, politicians will always uh, come up with uh, reasons why things wouldn't go ahead uh, the way they should. For example, in the United Kingdom here, we've head of the Christmas party that held in uh, December last year when there was lockdown. I mean, but uh, the same event, we've seen like 10 different versions. Some said, no, it was a business dinner. No, it was a quiz night. No, it was a question and answer session, isn't it? And then they've come up with so many other different things. So should we cancel Christmas this year and things just to deflect attention? So it's, it is the same everywhere. I mean, um, I think well, we glad we've got Ose here, who's also a politician, that politicians will always bring out all just like what everyone was saying that in the time of trump then there will always be people who will support whatever it is if, irrespective of you know the fact that we watch the um for example the lucky massacre going on live people streamed it and things yet there were people who denied it and had followers so when it comes to the question of whose report do we believe is it the late ghost governor saying oh he's cancelled the peace work because he's got uh because of the new uh variant of covid or do we agree with the people that say no? It's because um, all the celebrities you invited refuse to join you in that uh, madness, you know. Because uh, at the end of the day, you invited those people. Secondly, you set up the panel, which has turned out to, you know, very courageously say, look, this happened. Um, there was a massacre. And you guys are responsible, you know. And now you want to be as if you're on the side of the people. You know? But again, he's a politician. You wouldn't blame him. But I think in saying that also. Let's also be um, sort of look at it this way that, well, even as a governor, even if all the prominent um, celebrities refuse to follow him, he can still hire his um, his crowd, isn't it? The likes of, I mean, they control all the, what they call those guys in Lagos, uh, the MC Lomos people, you know, they could all still go for their peaceful work and have military and police and soldiers and still do it, you know, even without the celebrities and it will still hold you know, so so again, I mean, that's something he can do, but obviously it would be better if he had all these celebrities and people present. So it's difficult to say whose report do we believe, but clearly most of those guys he reach out to refuse to attend because they don't want to give their names to such a thing or to support an injustice or, you know, and, and which, I mean, I give them kudos, you know, on like the gentleman who went out and said, oh, you shouldn't criticize your leaders, who, which is quite shameful. So, so yeah, it's difficult to say who you believe for everywhere. Governments um, will always bring out statements that will favor them and wouldn't rather tell you the plain truth as the case may be. Thank you. Thank you, Arona. It seems... Uh... You've also refused to tell us whose report uh, you believe. But anyway, on to our final topic. The APC leader and former chairman, I think he was the foundation chairman, uh, Chief B.C. Akonde, has 
published his memoirs. He's called them My Participations. So Bisi Akonde is in his 80s now. And the book has generated a lot of interest in the political space. Uh, one of the interesting things he's talked about is the fact that a lot of northern political and religious figures put pressure on the APC to abandon the idea of Buhari being the presidential candidate. So firstly to Phoenix, do you believe that story? Do you believe that a lot of the northern political elite were opposed to Buhari getting the ticket in 2015? Phoenix? I mean, I, I, I mean if, they, if they were opposed, then obviously uh, they, they knew what most of us knew, that uh, he should never have been allowed to get, get close to the presidency. Um, do I believe the story? I, I'm taking myself back to that, uh, to that point in time. And I think what, was, what makes me doubt the story is, at, at that time, I mean, the, the, agenda, the Northern agenda was to get power back at all costs. And, and for them, the, their most viable Northern candidate, given that he had consistently pulled a large number of votes in, across the North, um, in in a number in like three presidential runs before the 2015 one, um, it seemed to me like they were more than willing to queue behind him to in this new coalition that they had put together to to bring him to pass. So and I, I would say on that basis, no, I do not believe I do not believe the story, especially if he's talking about APC. Um, it's even well known that um, Northern politicians in the PDP, some of them conspired against their own sitting president to, to work for Buhari uh, behind the scenes. So no, I, I, I do not believe that. But, you know, for me, the, <laughs> when, I heard, when I heard about the book, I haven't read the book. I've just been following the excerpts in the news like, like most people. I'm not one that has put much ever put much stock in what BC Akonde says. I do I don't see him as somebody that has uh, that that has moved the needle from a, from an intellectual perspective. So it, it doesn't I mean but when I well, you see what bothered me as a as a Yoruba man was some of the excerpts and some of the things that he wrote and, and how he was practically eulogizing um, two of the worst characters that we've had in, in this democracy since 1999, talking about Buhari and Tinubu, and saying to myself, I mean, you're an 82-year-old man. What, what possesses you to, to still do this at this age? Surely you know the state of the nation. You know what has happened. You, we, I mean, we're just talking about uh, the people in Sokoto we, we, we talk about the insecurity crisis, we talk about the economy in doldrums and the um, rising poverty in the land. Then you come out and you're writing an autobiography of yourself, but anyone reading it will think that this was uh, a, a, I mean, a, a, a Buari, we held the peace with, with some sprinkling of Tinumbu in there, in, I mean, obviously in preparation for, for the latter's run for the presidency. It's just, it's just sad. It's just, it's just sad that in the, in the, that, I mean, 
you, I mean, at least someone who's accomplished, he's been a governor, right? I mean, you've done things in your life. What do you still need that possesses you to do this? I think that was, that's the one question I come away with. And uh, I really don't have much to say about BC Akwande. Well, thank you, Phoenix. Let me bring in uh, Ose, who is the political. Ose, Buhari, in response to the book, said he would happily follow BC Akonde into the jungle. I think that's the uh, phrase he used. But a number of people noted that Buhari imprisoned the same Bisi Akonde in 1984. So back to the question I asked Phoenix, uh, Ose. Does it, does it make logical sense that first of all, the, that knowing Buhari's antecedents, both North and Southern elite wanted him as president? And secondly, Bisi Akonde in particular, why would Bisi Akonde want to support that kind of man, someone who had imprisoned you unjustly in 1984, we'll say. Um, I, I, I followed the story uh, when it broke and I just kept on laughing. Um, I remember uh, Akande was convicted for maybe, was it like a hundred years or, so, or something and actually spent almost two years in jail. Um, I, you know, so it's, <laughs> I think you know we have to understand that politics is is it's for for a lot of politicians just about um, you know an aggregation of personal interests. Um, Bisia Kande, I think, joined those guys with Tinubu that fought against the military rule. Um, I, I don't remember the name of that Nadeko, yeah, Nadeko. Um, he has always been with Tinubu. He has all he was. Um, one of the first governors in 1999 with AD, I think. Um, and if you remember in 2007, he says that he was, you know, he was with Tinubu when they had asked Atiku to make Tinubu vice president. Uh, ostensibly with the um, assumption that after an Atiku presidency, Tinubu would become president. Um, the same gambit was uh, put to Buhar in 2015. Um, and the same gambit has been flown now. You know, they want their man uh, to get the top job. You know, so it's 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 a conversation that you know is 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 rooted around lies and you know hypocrisy. Um, I remember Tinubu himself came out to say he never wanted the job, um, and BC now is saying Tinubu wanted the job, but he was denied it by by Buhari. Obviously, one of them is 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 not telling the truth. Um, but it's it, it just interesting, you know, again, like I said, he's 82. You would think maybe by this time he would, um, if he's coming out with a tell-all book, he would try to be a little bit more honest or a little bit more circumspect or reflective about some of the choices and decisions he has made. Um, I think what got my goat really was when he did that thing that a lot of Buhari um, supporters do where they say, yes, there are problems, but Nigerians are to blame for those problems. And I don't know, I don't understand why they, they are blaming you. Um, that Nigerians are corrupt, Nigerians are criminals, Nigerians are indisciplined, um, and they are the architects of, of, our own, of their own misfortune. Um, Oga Akande is a politician, he's playing politics. Um, he wants his own Oga to become president. Um, and he'll call, 
poop um, premium chocolate, you know, to eat it if if that's what's going to get the Tinubu into Asu Rock in 2023. Thank you, Ose. To Haruna, one of the interesting pictures painted of Buhari is someone who is quite a double dealer because it said, actually, I'm going to tell the story of Tinubu and himself getting angry with Buhari because they'd agreed apparently that Tinubu would be the running mate. But at every point, Buhari either kept pretending to not remember or kept trying to suggest other alternatives until they both got very angry with him and cornered him. Is, is that a picture of Buhari that you recognize? Someone who double deals, Haruna? Well, I think um, Buhari is... Uh, I mean, sometimes people say... Uh, I, I, I would just describe Buhari as someone who is more of an enigma in that you never know which side he really belongs to. So remember, even when Oshimale was, you know, having all the issues and things, he would come raise his hand, he would come raise the, his opposition's hand as well. And then so when you come to him, you think, oh, this man is with me because he hasn't said no to me, isn't it? So, I mean, I think, and that's how Buhari has always been, right from, you know, time, you know, immemorial as, we, as far as we can remember what Buhari is, even in the military, that's what people would say. You would never really know what's on his mind or if he's with you or against you because he just smiles look at you and say okay 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 that's really good what you've said so for example if you come and say oh yeah you want to be the next president you say ah that's really good I, I, i've heard about you you are this 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 and then your opposition comes to him you be like ah you okay you're also a very good man so at the end of the day, two of you will go living, you know, thinking, well, is he, he's, he's on my side, isn't it? You know, and if you confront him, truly, he has never said to you yes or no. So it's you who is left to make the assumptions. And I think that's why Buhari has always gotten away with things, because people then can never come out and say, oh, but you exactly told me I was going to be this, this, this. You say, no, 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 I only listened, or, but I don't remember saying that. And truly, you yourself will now think, but truly, this man never said that to me, that I was the one. He only gave me an impression and, you know, or that was my perception. So I think for me, that is typical Buhari. That's how he deals with people. You know, just like when they bring reports to him, oh, this is happening in this country. Oh, really? When? I didn't know that my IG did not travel. And I told him to travel, you know. So he just forms feigns ignorance or he doesn't give you a response. So it's left for you to decide what you take out of that meeting. And I think that's how he's always been, you know. So I don't know. Is that his strategy? Is he a double dealer? I don't know what you would call that ball. I think that's how he's always dealt with people. And, you know, just before this podcast, I was thinking this man has really gotten away with whatever he does. Because, like, I think one of the questions was, how come they are not protesting in the north about what Buhari is doing? Because at the end of the day, he wouldn't take responsibility to say, well, I'm the commander in chief. It would be more, oh, well, what are the security chiefs doing? You know, rather than, well, what have I done myself? And truly, no one will ever come and sort of outrightly say to him, well, but this is what you said, Oga, you know. So I think that's how Bari deals and he's always gotten away with it, sadly. But Haruna, just, just, I mean, on that, I mean, isn't that incongruous with this, uh, with this Megaskia um, toga that he has? I mean, that's his nickname, right? That's his whole, that's his claim to fame. That, that's what he's always been, that this guy was was somebody of integrity, but this picture of him that you are painting is clearly someone who's 
at best Machiavellian, at worst, he's a double dealer. He's a he's somebody who um, who simply cannot be held to 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 that same um, description, in my view. Again, I, I mean, uh, do I agree with what you've said? Yes, but is that how he deals with people? Uh, again, the answer will still be yes. You know, it's. Um, because just like um, you know, um, the, the the initial question of well, had he promised Tinubu he will be this you know after me, I'm sure he's also told Rochas the same thing. I'm sure he's also told uh, what's this chap's name, the Minister of Science and Technology, and understand he's also one of those people. And I'm sure when he sees all of them, he smiles and like, oh yeah, that's a very good plan you've got. That if you take over from me, you know, to bring equity in the system, somewhat you know. But clearly he's never told any of them, well, look, I've endorsed you or, okay, I'm going to hand over to you. He just smiles. Or I think there's the tip, um, the story of around, um, what do you call it, um, restructuring, isn't it? That when he ran with Tunde Bakare or so, said, oh, you know, this is everything he told him, oh, this is what we'll do, we'll restructure. Okay, yes, I'll, you know, but again, when you now confront him and say, oh, God, but I gave you this information. Ah, really, I can't remember when was that? Oh, you really said something like that. Okay, I will check on it. So, so, but he's always gotten away with it. So, it, does that show he hasn't got integrity? But the answer may be yes. He maybe he hasn't. But people still learn from outside look and say, well, but truly the man never promised anyone anything. So you can't hold him accountable for it, you know. And it's worked for him, you know. So, so, so it's a sad reality. But that's how he's modus operandi and he's always succeeded in, with it that way. I mean, imagine if Jonathan or someone, a southerner was the president with what's happening in this country. I'm sure none of us will even be here today, you know, having this conversation because we'll all be protesting and things, but he's flying all over the world happy and everyone is receiving him. Again, that's the Buhari for you. So it's it's really a sad reality, but we, you know, that's, I, I don't know what else to say. Thank you. Thank you. Haruna, for, in, in my own view, I, I think it's a mixture of the two. I think, on the one hand, I think Buhari generally has some sort of memory problem. But on the other hand, I think he's also a schemer. So he plays along with different camps, leading them to believe that he's on their side. But my question to Ebua, Ebua, this, this is more of an intellectual question, which is, surely it's a good thing that a political figure like Bisiya Konde is at least writing his memoirs because a number of Nigerians have complained about the fact that many prominent people seem to be dying without putting their 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 life stories in, in a book. So I, I suppose this is something to be saluted, isn't it, Eboa? Oh, yes and no. Yes and no. And uh, this is one of the things I think about. Um, you know, if you if you if you work in research or international corporate, when we talk when when there's discussions about Africa, there's always the question: Can we trust the data? Is there data, and can we trust it? And so, it is a good thing that Nigerians or elderly Nigerians are putting their pen to paper and telling their life stories. But like um, Ose has said, and Phoenix has said, and the general 
agreement seems to be, well, there's a lot of BS in that book. And so what happens is you solve one problem and you contribute massively to another, which is, can we trust the data? And so what happens is the accepted history of this country would be from people who have shown some integrity or who the world gives integrity to. And most, and most times, those people are not Nigerians. They are not politicians. So, for example, the unofficial biography of Fela is a more quoted person than Fela himself. That, isn't, that, isn't that weird? And uh, apart from other problems that contribute to that being a thing, it is because when you release your memoir, immediately everyone says, this is a lie, this is a lie. So we can't even agree as to what has happened in the past. So intellectually, it is a thing. And, and maybe this wraps up the points that I was trying, I was making in, in the first place. When we have corrupted in-groups, when we have people unable to say, this is the situation separate from the person. When we have people, when we have this patronage system where you're trying to protect some people, this is the result. We end up producing data that is so horrible from the get. And so it ends up not even being useful at all. Maybe there, maybe it's just that we are seeing that there are a lot of lies and maybe there's some other parts that we can accept, but come on. Uh, a fly in the ointment, as they say, makes the entire bottle stink. Thank you, Eboa, for your contributions. My final question goes to Ose. Um, Ose, one of the things Lysia Conde said is that Buhari and the APC never promised restructuring. Is, is this true? that they never promised restructuring in 2015? <laughs> they did over and over again. Um, they set up a committee when they got power, headed by El Rufai, who produced a report, a recommendation they actually made public and have submitted to the president. Um, it's curious that he would say that. I, I, I think, again, you know, when we speak about... Um, personal interest. I think they are, they are conscious of the fact that for whatever reason, uh, certain sections of the North are concerned or not as enthusiastic as certain sections of the South are about the prospect of restructured Nigeria. You know, so it's not something that um, you would put on your, on your, on your manifesto, your campaign manifesto, when you're looking to build alliances with the North, like Tinubu is uh, clearly seeking to do. Um, but it's um, just uh, pure revisionism, or maybe at his age, uh, memory is starting to fail him. It's uh, sad to see. Um, um, <laughs> it's sad to see, but I don't think um, any presidential candidate is going to be able to run without some form of restructuring in 2023. So I, I don't see how this even suits or serves um, Akande or Tinubu's um, larger purpose it it's 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 it was a very very confusing claim but one i saw and i just smiled and and passed and walked past thank you thank you Jose. because i i too specifically remember 
the APC promising restructuring. In fact, that was one of the selling points that they used to tackle Jonathan's constitutional conference. So I'm generally confused as to this denial by uh, Chief Akonde. But our time is up. So firstly, thank you to our guests. Thank you, Aruna, Ebua, and Ose for taking time out to be here. Thank you, Phoenix, for co-hosting with me. And finally, I say a big thank you to our loyal listeners. We apologize for being away for two weeks. We were on uh, work schedules, but we're back. And hopefully we'll be delivering you weekly reviews of the news. So until same time next week, I say have a fantastic seven days to everyone. Thanks, Michael. And thanks, thanks guys, for joining us. Um, really, really great uh, um, opportunity to talk across a number of topics today. And, and, and thanks to, to our listeners. Michael has said everything, nothing else for me to add. Have a great week, everyone. And uh, we look forward to being back again next week. Bye.